Let's pray together. Lord, this is your message for us, not my message for them. Give me the demeanor, the spirit, the conviction, the strength to say what you want me to say, and the strength to not say what you don't want me to say. Lord, it is your spirit that will send this out, and it will not return void. It will accomplish what you want it to accomplish. Lord, as we hear from the gospel according to Mark, help us realize that what it meant is what it means, but that their culture and their lives, while they looked different, they weren't that different than we, than the culture we live in right now. Translate it, Lord. Illuminate it. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> a text out of pretext, or text out of context is a pretext for trouble. We're going to be right at the end of the gospel, uh, the gospel of Mark chapter 8. But this is a big, it's an important chapter in the gospel according to Mark. I mean, there's not, there's not an unimportant one, uh, but things change right here. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Jesus decided no longer to engage the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law. Uh, word for word, he began speaking in parables because they just, they weren't, they weren't going to be convinced. This though, there's a change in Jesus. He turns and he starts to go toward his suffering. And he's very clear about it. Now, Jesus, in, this, in, in the gospel according to Mark, uh, we've talked about this. He's, he, he's not messing around. I mean, he goes right at it. He goes right in it. I mean, after he comes out of the desert, having been tempted, he immediately drives out an evil spirit, then starts call, or calls his disciples, drives out an evil spirit. He's, he's Rambo. And for those of you too young to know what that means, he's really tough. He goes right at it. And, but there's a spot, there's a little hiccup, it seems like, in this particular passage. Because it looks like Jesus every time, I mean, Jesus is someone who can walk down the road and someone can crawl through a crowd, touch the hem of his garment, and her bleeding issue that's been lifelong goes away. But here, when he, he, he heals a man, he doesn't get it right the first time. Now, I'm saying that with a little tongue-in-cheek and a little smirk on my face, because I think he, Jesus is brilliant here. Now, and Mark, recording it the way Mark has recorded it, is brilliant. Because of what's happening in this chapter, this is the watershed point in the gospel according to Mark, where things change. Instead of out there telling people that he heals, don't tell anyone. He wants people to know who he is, not who they think he is. And here is the break point for that, kind of the fulcrum where it shifts from here to here. Because Jesus is no longer trying to help people understand. He's trying to say to his disciples, the people that should understand, you misunderstand. So the title of this message is Understanding What We Misunderstand. But what's going on right before this, so that you know that Mark places this here. I, I think it happened in this order. Don't hear me wrong. But Mark could have recorded this miracle very differently. Some people brought a, a man who was blind to Jesus, wanted him to touch him. He spit on him. He got healed. Done. That's not what he records. Here's what's just happened. Jesus had just fed, fed 4,000. Chapter before, it was 5,000. So the, the disciples are seeing provision, seeing miraculous things, starting with a little and ending with a lot. I mean, the abundance, the prodigal nature of God's uh, provision for us is just astounding. But people don't understand. And then the, they, they go, get on the lake and they go off to a place. Uh, I got to read it because I never pronounce it right. And now I'm, gonna find, I'm not going to find it. 
There we go. Hard word. They went to a new place. Hard word. Um, and what happens there is that the Pharisees and elders and those types come up. They're the good Christians. They're not Christian, but if, if we looked at them today, they're the people who do the right thing, that do the right way. They have all the right religious practices. They're good Christians, so to speak. And they come up to Jesus and they say, it doesn't say they put their hands on their hips, but show us a sign from heaven. And he goes, no. In fact, if you look through the scriptures, every time someone asks for a sign, he says no. He's shown, he just fed 4,000 people. He previously fed 5,000 people. He, he healed a leper. He's, he's healed a, a dead girl. I, there's plenty that Jesus has done that people would say. But, and we fall into this as Christians or as, as, as people who are considering Christianity. We'll say things like, Lord, if you're really real, give me a sign. Or, Lord, I'm looking up to the stars. If you really love me, shoot a shooting star across the... We, we, want, we want some indication that Jesus hears us. But these folks were saying, if you give us a sign on command, then we'll believe in you. And no, they won't. And Jesus knows that. That if you have faith, no sign is needed. If you don't have faith, no sign will satisfy. So these people think they get it. They're, it's convenient for them. If Jesus will come under their purview, under their leadership, under their, their social structure, then they're going to go with him. And if they, if they, wanna, they want verification, tactile, empirical proof that he comes from God. And they already know he comes from God. They haven't even doubt, they haven't doubted in the times when he's in the synagogue and he's healing people. They don't doubt the miracles, but now they want one on command. And Jesus says, no. And then he gets in the, and he heads out with his disciples and he's teaching them and he says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Now, there's a lot of ways to explain that. That's not the passage we're reading today, but I just want you to see that the disciples don't get it either. They don't even understand that they misunderstand. You think he's, he's, he's mad at us because we didn't bring any bread? It's like bread? Didn't you? 5,000 men. How much bread do we have? Seven. Uh, 4,000. You think I'm worried about bread? I'm trying to teach you something. They don't get it. And then it goes over here. They, they end up in Bethsaida. And it says this. They came to Bethsaida. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand. And he led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? And this was different than most of the times when he heals blind or deaf people. We, we hear often that, you know, and it's not like there's some, some, some magical words that he has to say, but, but he puts a little dust in his hand and he, and he makes a little paste and he puts it. That's not what it says here. It says, he, it's the first time that I know of that Jesus took him, took him away from the big crowd. He, it's one-on-one -on -one, and his disciples obviously are seeing, they've witnessed this, but, but Jesus takes him away. Instead of for all to see, he takes him away. And, and I, don't think, I don't think it was gross, but he spit on him. Then he touched him. And then he said, do you see anything? Now we know by this man's response that he's been able to see before because he knows what people are supposed to look like. He knows what trees are supposed to look like. So this man somehow, somewhere in his life was able to see clearly. And then because of cataracts, maybe because of some other kind of disease, whatever it is, he, he's lost his ability to see at all. 
And he, Jesus touch, spits on him and touches him and says, do you see anything? And he, he, it says he looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hand on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Now, why two touches? Was Jesus lacking in the presence of the Holy Spirit? The omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God? The all-powerful, ever-present, all-knowing? Is Jesus lack God? He is God. So is he lacking the ability to touch the spit on a guy and touch him and have his eyes open so he can see everything clearly? Of course not. I think Jesus is brilliant. He's God. He, I hope he is. But what he does here in this particular place, in this particular point in his ministry, is just astounding. Because he just had people going, we don't understand. Him. Why don't you do it this way? And why don't you do it that way? And, and he miracle after miracle after miracle. And his disciples are going, but, but is he yelling at us because we didn't bring bread? What? And right before this passage, he, the word is, he goes, do you still not understand? And then he gives them a picture. He said, you used to see it the way you saw it. And now you don't see things very clearly. Jesus kind of muddied up the waters, hasn't he? For, for the, good Christian, the, good, the good Jews, the, 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 the seminary professors and the pastor types and the elder types, the, the people that have done, all their stuff is in order, man. They have done everything right and they obey the law to the letter and, and they come up to, well, but, but you're not, this isn't, uh, think about your life. When something you had the best laid plans of mice and men, when you had it all lined up, you know, you were going, you were going to grow up and this is how it was going to happen and this is what was going to happen, this is what was, this, 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 this. isn't it frustrating when things don't work the way you want them to? Isn't it frustrating when Jesus doesn't come through the way you want him to? Isn't it frustrating when he isn't the man you want him to be or the God you want him to be? Isn't it frustrating when God doesn't bend his knee to your will? Because that's what's happening. It might be out of ignorance. But they don't understand who he really is. They think they know who they want him to be. And so Jesus gives them this picture. He takes this man aside, not for his family and friends to see, but for the disciples to see. And he spits on his eyes and he touches him and he says, you see anything? People look like trees. So you don't see things clearly. You don't really understand. You could see before, then you're blind. Now you got a bit. Let me open your eyes all the way so you can see things clearly because what comes next Jesus and his disciples went out of the village around villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on his way he asked them, "Who do people say I am?" And they replied, I can just say, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if the disciples, you'll see in the next chapter too that they're, you know, who's going to be the greatest and all that kind of stuff. So there's a little pecking order. I don't know who's, if someone's, if, if they're careful, like I don't want to give the wrong answer. I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to be wrong. Or if they're trying to be the first one to get it right. So some of them, who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets? What about you? 
Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you're the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, why is that? I mean, this is the watershed point, right? This is the tipping point. This is where everything changes. And Peter, Peter's the one, Peter's the one who, who Jesus is going to build a church on. He's the rock on whom he will build his church. And Peter's the guy. He gets out of the boat, right? I mean, he's the only other person in the history to walk on water. Peter, if not, I get it. When someone from the outside comes in, the demoniac and the, and the garrisons, and, and he sends him back home, and he does tell him to actually talk about it. But others, he said, don't tell anyone. Don't. I get it. Because, because they're going to go tell the wrong thing. They don't know enough. They don't really know him. They're not following him. They've just been blessed by him. And that's fine. But don't you think the disciples, the ones that he sent out two by two to speak in his name, to, to do the work of Jesus in his stead instead of him, that, that they actually drove out demons. They actually healed the sick. They actually told people that were paralyzed to stand up and they got up. Don't you think that, that, that he would say to them, you get it now. I'm the Christ. Tell everybody. But they don't get it. They think they do, but they don't. They, they have a picture of who the Christ is. And Jesus is saying to him, you don't understand and I don't want you telling anybody until you do understand. And I'm going to ask you this question. Is it possible, even likely, that you and I don't understand who Jesus really is? I mean, we've been told, if you grow up in the church, you've been told your whole life, love your neighbor, Tell them about Jesus. Always preach Jesus and when necessary, use words. We've been told to, to we've, been, we've been taught even to learn how to tell your story so that it's not about you, it's about Jesus. And, and when you share your faith with someone else, the word will go out and will not return void. We've, we've been told to witness, 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 witness. Why does he tell them not to? Is it possible that we fall into this, that we don't understand, that we misunderstand? Is it possible that we've, we've got a picture of Christ that isn't accurate? It's what's going on there. Peter, you'll see in a minute, Jesus rebukes him. But Peter has a picture of Jesus, of the Christ, that isn't accurate. This culture is very much like our culture. This culture is pre-Christian. Jesus is walking the earth, but Christianity hasn't spread. Here, now, we must understand who Jesus is. Our culture either hates him because he's all about rules and condemnation, which isn't the scriptural reference to Jesus, or Jesus loves everybody and he celebrates just how you are right now. And does Jesus love everybody? Absolutely. And does he love you the way you are? Absolutely. Is he going to leave you the way you are if you come to follow him? Absolutely not. He will destroy your life in a glorious, redemptive, Holy Spirit-inspired way, but he will destroy your life. These folks following Jesus thought that he's going to be Napoleon with olive-colored skin, that he's going he's to be a conqueror. He's coming in on a white horse, and he's not just going to just shoo, shoo away the Romans. He's going to slaughter them. That's what the zealots thought. So when Peter says, you're the Christ, it's like we've got our military leader. We're about to find this political res uh, uh, resurgence. Insurgence is the word I'm looking for. But this revolution is about to take place, and... 
We get little Jesus pieces of miracles too. But folks, I'm going to tell you, we don't get to pick little Jesus pieces. We don't get to pick and choose the things we like, the convenient ones, and disregard the things we don't. And watch when Peter's trying to do just that. He then began to teach them. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, that's it. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. There's audacity there. I don't care who you are. Peter, and I am kind of a Peter. Ready, fire, aim! The audacity of taking Jesus aside. It's the same word for rebuke. There's lots of ways you can translate rebuke. There are lots of words that can be translated. But it's the same one when Jesus rebukes a spirit. The same one that when, when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, when he, when he tells them that, that you'll cross the sea to win a single convert, you bring them back and make them twice the son of hell as you. It's the same word for rebuke. Peter grabs Jesus and takes him aside and he goes, don't tell us you're going to die. You know better, you know better than anyone that, that, that this is going to be a political... He's God and he's rebuking God. And what does Jesus say? But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Why did they call him Satan? I know I'm getting a little animated. I'm really trying to, I'm, I'm about to turn into. Mark does not record the actual temptations of Jesus the way the other gospels do. He says that he's baptized with the Holy Spirit, that, 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 that he's baptized with John, as John the baptizer baptized him, and then the Holy Spirit of God, the Ruach of God hovers over him. You are my son, and I am well pleased with you. And then Mark says he, he led him off into the desert to be tempted by Satan and to spend time with wild animals. What does Satan tempt Jesus to do? What's one of those temptations? If you'll just bend your knee to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world and it won't cost you anything. Do the easy thing at no cost to you. You have everything that the God of the universe promised you. Peter's doing the same thing. Don't, don't die. You're not, you're not gonna die. Come on. We all know that you're gonna be the leader. You're gonna, you sit on the throne of David that you're gonna, you're gonna come in and you're gonna change everything and Rome's gonna be gone. And, and in fact, we're gonna be the conquering nation. We're gonna be the one that all the known world, they bend their will and their knee to Yahweh and to his people. That's what Peter's saying to Jesus. And he goes, Get, don't you tempt me to become the very thing I'm not. Don't you dare Tell me that, that the plan of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is wrong. I just explained to you how it's going to go. I know better than you do. Don't you rebuke me. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself himself. 
take up his cross and follow me. And whoever, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel, he'll save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his own soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory and the holy angels. Is that the Jesus you really like? I mean, don't you kind of like the wimpy Jesus who stands like this a lot? It's very calm, sweet. Oh, come here, Pharisee, come over here. It'll be okay. He does that with the least of these. But with those of us who think we get it and don't, but, but Lord, I, I did this and I did this and I did this. Why'd this go wrong? But Lord, you're supposed to, look, you've heard me say a dozen times over the last couple of years, Jesus did not come to make your life easier. And here's the other thing, folks. He doesn't work for us. We work for him. He calls us to be like him. Christian means little Christ. He wants us to do the things that he did, say the things that he said, and go wherever he tells us to go. In fact, in the gospel according to John, Jesus says, you will do even greater things than me. Do we understand that we probably misunderstand? That we have convenient Jesus. We have inconvenient Jesus. And if you land on convenient Jesus... He's there to make me feel better about myself and to celebrate everything that I want to do. Then really what it is, is it's not, that, it's not that we are to become like him. We're asking him to become like us. We're asking him to bless everything that we do and are and want when he's actually the inconvenient. He just says, you're going to have to take up your cross. If you want to save your life, lose it. Soren Kierkegaard, a philosopher, an existential philosopher, he, he says that there's two types of people in the world, just two. Sinners who think they're righteous and the righteous who actually know they're sinners. So which one are you? Not which one should you be. We all know the right answer. We know what we're supposed to answer. Read the Bible, go to church, pray. Oh, give 10%. We, we know what, what we're supposed to do. We know what, what we're supposed to be the sinners who, or the, or the righteous who know we're sinners. And then by the grace of God alone, he transforms our hearts, our minds, our souls, and, and makes us into the person that he called us to be. We know the right answer, but which one are you? Do you think of yourself as righteous? Do you think, not, you wouldn't say it, but do you think that Jesus works for you? I mean, don't hear me wrong. He does. 
He advocates for us. He goes out before us. He walks alongside of us. And he takes up the space behind us. The Holy Spirit of God lives in us. But the Holy Spirit of God lives in us and wants us to be who Jesus wants us to be. He doesn't want to just sit there and, and, and let us wallow in our own... Vi- our culture says, I have rights. This isn't very American to me, I know. But our culture says, I have a right to this, I have a right to this, and no one can tell me otherwise. And if you, t- if, you try to, if you try to impose your will on me or you try to tell me something that offends me, I'm offended and you're in the wrong. And Christians really should never be offended because we give up our rights. When we pledge allegiance to Christ, we are no longer our own, but belong body and soul and life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So how is it that we can be offended when we don't belong to ourselves? How is it that I can demand Jesus do something for me that I want when he might have other plans for me? Peter wanted him to be a political revolutionary. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So I'm going to give you some words that will stand the test of time. I mean, when people remember me, Trent Walker once said, it is impossible to follow Jesus unless you actually follow Jesus. Let me say it again. It's impossible to follow Jesus unless you actually follow Jesus. If you don't, then you're either a friend or a fan, but you're not a follower. If Jesus stood up here right now and said, hey, everybody in this room, you know who I am, yep, follow me. And he walked backstage out that door, and you sit here and go, yes, Lord, and you remain in your seat. He's a convenient Jesus. I follow him in my heart. Yeah, I'm sarcastic, but you can't do that. Peter missed it, and he actually rebuked God. Jesus said, I have a plan for humanity, not just for individuals, but for all the world. And part of that plan is I want you to go in my stead and cast out demons, heal the sick, and preach the gospel. And if you're ashamed of me or my word, then I'm ashamed of you. I don't like that. So what's the difference between then and now? Jesus has already come. People either think he's terrible and judgmental and evil. Or people think he's just going to do whatever we want him to do. And he's going to live into our preconceived ideas of who Jesus is. It was a pre-Christian era then. It's a pre-Christian era now. The difference is that there are Christians now. And if you're a follower of Christ, you're one of them. Do you understand that you may misunderstand? Because the, the Jesus of the scriptures is neither convenient nor solely inconvenient. When I say that you give up your rights, it's your will, Lord, not mine. And that can sound bad because I understand that we are entitled to things as sons and daughters of God. We are heirs to the throne. We have his authority that we can claim. But when he said to the disciples, 
Come follow me. What did they have to do? They threw down their nets. They walked away, some of them, from their families. And then they went where he said to go. They spoke what he said to speak. And they did what he said to do. That's what I mean by you give up your own rights. Give up your rights to be on the right side of things. Last word. God created us in his image. Have we returned the favor by making him in ours? I hope not. Understand that you may misunderstand. Let's pray. Lord, give us the courage to ask you to show us where we might be missing it. And give us the courage to say yes, Lord, even when we don't want it. Lord, it's easy, to, it's easy for you to be our Savior because you fix our problem. But it's hard to allow you to be our Lord. Give us the courage to say, yes, Lord, your will for me and for others, not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. It's hard, it's hard to explain this as a, <clears throat> as a preacher because not everyone is one. But when you get, you get kind of carried away up here and you, you, you just, you just kind of feel naked. So um, the disciples wanted Jesus to be the kind of Christ they heard about. Because then, when they're number two, three, four, five, six, seven, all the way down to 13, everybody will like them, respect them, or at least have to obey them. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. It's going to hurt. And we're in a culture now where we, we, we got to get over the fact that people don't like us because of the gospel. We got to not be ashamed of it. But stop waiting for them to come around to our way of thinking. The only way that's going to happen is if we represent the reign of Christ, the true Christ, the whole Christ, to the world. We are the hope for the world because we walk with Christ. So let's get over ourselves. Stop being afraid. Stop being offended. And, start, and stop expecting people to go, yes, you had it right. His disciples... Some of them were torn apart by wild animals. One of them was boiled in oil. Jesus tells them, it's not going to be that way. It's going to be hard because God wants to save and bless humanity. And he chooses to use a motley crew like us to bring that message to the world. Let us be people who stand firm in the scriptures and bring grace to the world, no matter what happens to us. Because that will be like Jesus. The Lord bless you. Which means to say good things about you. Keep you. Make his face shine on you. Be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance toward you. God smile at you and give you peace. And all of God's people say, amen. Go with and in the peace of Christ.